Fresh off his APP New York Sup Open win, Connor's already on the opposite coast, getting settled for the Battle of the Bay taking place this weekend in San Francisco. I got a chance to catch up with him in between events to talk about his overall win in New York and his impressions of the 2018 APP World Tour. Tristan Boxford, the CEO of the Association of Paddle Professionals, has just delivered the second stop of his 2018 season now that London and New York are in the books. I talked to Connor about the iconic scenery of Lower Manhattan and the Statue of Liberty before and during the race, as well as the less-than-flat water conditions they experienced on the five-mile course out and around Ellis Island. Connor excels in the bumps, and particularly in the big downwind events. Born and raised on Maui, he's especially fond of the race across the Pailolo Channel that separates his home island from Molokai. He's undefeated in that crossing now, nine years running. He's also won M2O three times, which led me to ask him about the approach and preparation he takes towards each race and what makes M2M so much different than M2O. Foiling continues to be a huge topic of conversation, and Connor's one of the best foilers out there. I talked to him about the future of the foil classes in the Hawaii downwind races and whether we can expect to see him make the switch from an unlimited sup to a foil anytime soon. Speaking of guys who love to foil, I also got to ask him about his early years growing up with our good friend Chuck Patterson in the house. Connor's parents, Keith and Karen, were early sponsors of Chuck and graciously hosted him every winter to chase the wind and huge waves on Maui. Chuck was clearly a solid role model for Connor during those years, helping him, helping to mold him into the professional water athlete he is today. Connor's parents have a great relationship with Sven Rasmussen, the founder of Starboard. And as such, Connor's been riding for the brand ever since he was four years old. Connor's now 24, and when he shares his age with me, I have to explain that 24 really isn't considered old. However, it does make him only one year younger than Starboard as a brand, which certainly puts his time on the water as an athlete into perspective. I'm certain that Sven, Keith, and Karen couldn't have predicted the success and satisfaction that both parties would experience by pairing this young waterman prodigy with what would become one of the most successful board builders and brands in the industry. It's been a perfect symbiosis of athlete and brand from the beginning, and those bonds couldn't be stronger today. There are a few more races before the season ends, and Connor seems focused on where he needs to be and what he needs to do to finish strong. He's a professional in and out of the water and a solid ambassador for the sport. I really enjoyed getting to spend some time chatting with him and hope you enjoy the results. Thank you for listening. Aloha. Connor. Yo, yo, what's up? Hey, how are you? Doing good, doing good. We're just here in San Fran and uh, getting ready for an event this weekend here. And, yeah, cruising. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thanks for doing How's this. everything with you? Uh, things are good, man. Things are really good. We came off a really fun summer here and uh, winding into fall, which is typically a lot yeah. of a lot of wind in Vermont, which is good. So we get some like warm weather and some windy conditions in September, October. There's a little bit of hurricane swell that hits the East Coast. So it's kind of like the active part of the year where things finally start happening. Yeah, nice. Well, that's all good. And yeah, thanks again. Really appreciate the board. That was huge help. Saved me a nightmare of a half day. So <laughs> I'll look out for oh man, we were so excited that that, uh, that all came together. I mean, Evelyn was a trooper in um, he was. Helping, helping to sort of coordinate that whole thing. And 
Um, yeah, she gave us plenty of heads up. So we sort of had a plan of what we were going to do. And I was like, listen, he can use my board. That's no problem. And then I was, I was out of town, I think, when the board actually got transferred. And so some of the, I think I messaged you, but some of the guys in the shop went to town on that thing with the stickers. So what? No, but that's fair enough. Fair enough. It was, I, I like the first day I didn't know. So I would manage to get all my, my sponsors on there. And I was like, oh, perfect. They sit on there where I put them on normally. So no worries. I know, but it was hilarious because the first time I saw the board was yeah. on, I think it was on Instagram. And I remember seeing on Instagram or what? What's his name? Who drove it down? He sent a picture to oh, me as well. Yeah. Like, yeah, Spencer. Yeah. Spencer sent me that <laughs> shot. And I just remember going, I was looking at my phone going, oh my God, I can't believe how many freaking stickers they put on that thing. <laughs> yeah, uh, good. It was funny though. I mean, those guys are not shy about doing some extra marketing. And, and obviously we recognize a huge opportunity to have you riding it and, and, in a, in yeah, a, no, in a yeah, in a prestigious event as well. So. That's yeah. uh, it's part of the program. Yeah, and took the wind as well, so everyone was seeing it fostered everywhere. So it worked out. Great. Yeah, right. And so, how about that? How about that? How how was your time in New York? It looks like you had a really good time. It was sick. Yeah, super cool. It's uh, last year we we ended up going to New York just for a vacation. We like booked tickets, like talking to Tristan. Hey, is it for sure confirmed? He's like, yeah, yeah, no worries. Like we found some good deals. So he was like, book them, book them now. And then that got canceled. So it was nice to actually go there and get that event done and like actually have it run smoothly and pretty epically actually, you know, with the whole race around Statue of Liberty. I've never been, you know, that close to the Ellis Island and the uh, statue. So that was a trip. And then okay. seeing the whole skyline on the way back and then the Long Beach part was super fun. The the crew out there between, you know, the Scootins and then we were staying with some local friends and family down there. It's a pretty tight community between surfing and then even tighter in the stand up world. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, it's an awesome area. That whole that whole part of, of Long Island, like Long Beach and Rockaway and Yeah. Pretty special. And it really is. It's super cool. And the Scootin' Boys have done an amazing job down there. I mean, those guys, they really, they run, they run a lot of, obviously, surf culture, surf vibe, and surf excitement around that whole area. And obviously, Will and Cliff and Woody and, I mean, the whole crew has done amazing things for surfing, big wave surfing, and, and coming from New York is obviously really impressive. Yeah, definitely. No, it was super cool. So, it, the event looked like, I mean, other than some weather, the the event looked like it, it went off really well. So, I mean, I think. Yeah. I mean, as far I as the APP. Yeah. <laughs> as far I as the APP. Yeah. And, and the fact that it was canceled last year. And, you know, I know there's, I, I'm sure a lot of people were wondering, you know, what was going to happen this year, if they were going to see sort of similar kind of um, series of events. In terms of, you know, yeah. building a lot of hype and hopefully it'll happen. Who knows, you know, what's going to, how it's all going to play out. But I gotta, I gotta hand it to Tristan and the APP for <clears throat> taking on a, an incredible venue. It, it already challenging, right? Trying to run an event right in lower Manhattan. Yeah. And then to make it all, and it came out pretty well. You know, I think that 
some of the streaming was a little rough in spots, but ultimately I think that for a five, six day event, whatever it was, it, it went off really well. No, a hundred percent. No, they really stepped up their game. I know I met the investor over in London and he's stoked and passionate about stand up and he's he looks at it as well, yeah, of course a business opportunity, but he he knows it's not gonna be making the money in the you know, this year or next year, he knows it takes a few years to get it going. And then even on top of that, he's just so stoked on the sport that he doesn't mind just throwing some money at it. Yeah, and it's obviously everyone recognizes that New York is a huge opportunity, you know, and it and huge. Like, yeah, I know that I heard some rumors about the prices and all that stuff they had to spend on that one race, not even including Long Beach, but just the one race around uh, Ellis Island and the statue is ridiculous currently, <laughs> but who knows? Really? Well, it's like right For there. The you know? and, yeah. Yeah, and we had like the fire department, the Coast Guard, police, like pretty much all the different departments there, you know, making sure everybody was safe, making sure everything ran smoothly. Yeah, they had to get the, the mayor of New York involved. I mean, they pulled a lot oh, yeah. of strings to make that happen. And when you when you actually and they did a nice job, like from the from a viewer standpoint, when you look back and saw the setting, saw the backdrop and everything, it was very impressive. You know, I mean that's not like yeah. running an event down at your local beach. That's taking on no. some of the densest population and most expensive real estate in the country. And saying, hey, I'm going to find yeah, a paddleboard event right here. <laughs> what do you think about that? And that's that's just the beginning. You know, they have the event in London going down the Thames by Big Ben and the London Eye. And then that event in New York. And then the next one will be just the iconic. They're taking points from PPG. And then the Red Bull, San Fran, another huge city. And then Paris. It's like crazy. Yeah. And I mean, he did. You know, so Tristan kind of came out and said, listen, I, I'm going to step up the venue, the quality of the venues on this tour. And I mean, yeah. I, I don't think he left him, himself any room to get any better because I think he just. Yeah, that's the problem. Hopefully right? he doesn't go bankrupt. So he can't <laughs> run a better event, better no. than he I mean, did this year. Yeah, he kind of knocked off the big ones. And so far he's doing really, sure. really well. I think the London event re- went really well and. And now he's got two in the bag, and now he's going to go back to the heavy water event, which he already, I think, which was already really impressive last year. That was insane. So if it's anything like last year, he's going to do, he's going to bag his third event. Yep. But how? Running good. How does um? How does all? How does the? How is the tour resonating with everybody? I know there was some skepticism early on, like last year, year before, but how is it resonating so far this year? Everyone that's at the events is like, of course, stoked and, and supporting. And I'd say half of the people that are at the events and all the top guys are contracted in. So Tristan waved some money around and contracted some of the big names and stuff like Danny and Travis, who've never done APP events and have always talked so much shit about them. But then he waved a little money in front of them and contracted them in and then um outside of it like the people that are not showing up but are still talking a bunch of trash and still like not really stoked on Tristan just because of the previous years but I've been on both sides I've always been a huge supporter of Tristan just because I know what he's done and the sacrifices he's made and he's like 
not only put his life on the line and his health, but financially and all these different things, really laying it down to make sure we have a future for our sport, you know, and some people look at that as, oh, he's a fraud, he's a dick or whatever it is. But at the end of the day, he was pissing off people and having to owe people money, which anybody in their right mind wouldn't do that on purpose. Like, oh, this is going to be fun. Let's uh, go into this event broke and come out debt, you know? So, I don't know. I mean, for me personally, it's, it's been pretty incredible to see him also taking a step back and not only registering us, blowing the horns, starting us, laying the buoys. Hmm. And that's what he was doing because of the budget. You know, he was doing A through Z as far as promoting to, you know, on the beach starting us. Now he's like kind of sitting back, taking a different role and has everybody has their little job and niche that, you know, makes it run so much smoother. Right. It's hard to wear like all the hats. At some point you got to delegate it and it's going to run a little smoother. But I think a lot of people appreciate yeah. your, your perspective on this, honestly, Connor, because I think people feel like you have a really <clears throat> balanced um, perspective on sort of both sides of this story. And, you know, so it's, it's, it's actually really interesting to kind of hear your thoughts about it specifically. And I mean, I, <clears throat> I had heard that, you know, some of the, there's some athletes who got paid to sort of, participate on the tour and you know my understanding was that was to help compensate for some of the travel expenses knowing that some of these event sites were going to be all over the place and you're going to be kind of you know banging back and forth across the globe to go to these different sites and so i think all over the place and then like we said some huge locations and some of the most expensive real estate yeah. You know, you go to London and the cheapest place you can find to stay a night is like $200, same with New York. And then you walk out your door to try to find some cheap food and it's like same thing, you know. So it's it, that was the big, big, you know, reasoning behind the contracts just to help everybody out, help the top guys out and, and kind of lock them into the tour and uh, make sure they're, you know, supporting and, and giving them, giving the tour and the tours giving them, you know, fair, fair. Yeah, which I guess makes sense, right? You can't expect people to show up to some of the most and, and spend a lot more money than they normally would without getting some help there. Correct. So did he? Does yeah, he? Correct. Is he capping the tour in terms of the number of like professional athletes, or can anybody else kind of pay their way to come and compete? Yeah, no, it's it's coming down to like a WSL format, as far as like we're. I think it's, I don't know the exact number, but just say about, I think the top 25 guys are locked in. Yep. And that's from last year's results and just kind of looking at results on the tour and off the tour and just looking who's the best. And then they, of course, bring in a few wild cards of local areas. So like wherever we go, they try to invite a few, few people that, you know, could uh, have a good chance of, you know, competing with us that wouldn't have the opportunity. But now these really separated the, amateurs from the elite which you know it's a big big step in the sport because we've been such that like okay let's you know it's this big event we want mass mass participation which is really cool and works for a lot of different sports marathon and all that kind of stuff but to have it separated now and that knowing that you're going to an event and you know the top 20 are there and you know they're the best of the best is such a different feeling whereas like for instance, an event like PPG or the River or some of these things, which actually happens to me, you know, you get taken out by a guy that you don't even know his name or whoever he is at the start, 
or at the first boo turn, you're like, oh, wow, I just lost the whole race because this guy doesn't know what he's doing and he's just charging in, throwing his board in between legs and so on and so forth. So now you have a way more elite force and elite crew and you see it on the water. Like everyone's giving each other the respected room that they deserve and it's still battle and it's still rubbing its racing, but to a certain degree. And it's also a lot, lot cleaner of a, a race, you know, when you have just the top guys. Yeah, fewer people at the start line definitely gonna make it easier, which also makes the first buoy turn a, yeah. lot, a lot less crowded, right? So you don't get all that crazy congestion that can make. One hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> what did and you then, think? Of, yeah, even yeah, with, the, yeah, just even with the start too, it's like, um, for instance, like battle the paddle and these for PPG these big events. It's like if you're not starting on three or two. <laughs> then you're going to be like four board lengths behind the leaders where now we have like this tighter group and you can watch the line and actually, you know, give a field charge. And then the second time around, if you know, whoever went over early gets um, a penalty. So you're cleaning it up a lot. And once the rules and all that gets finalized and, and cemented in, you know, it's just going to get more and more professional. I've never actually seen that. I've never seen like a false start, but people were doing that. People were like charging off on right before the, the horn at the start. Yeah. So we had it. No, not really. Like I was saying with these events now, it's a lot cleaner and you can but see who's to. over or not. And yeah, you do get a false charge to the field. And then the second time is whoever went over early. But at the Long Beach race, we actually did. We like one guy went before and he was like racers ready. And then someone kind of, stepped over the starting line and then he called us all back yeah. uh, charge went to the field and then we knew the next time whoever stepped over early is going to get disqualified or a big penalty so no one no one's really creepy no one's really you know pushing that line which you know in europe and a lot of these races we had this year were just insane it was to the point where if you weren't cheating you were you know it's that prison rule you know if you're not doing what the other guys are doing you're going to get you know last place you're gonna get gaffed okay yeah, yeah exactly um what did you think about so how are the conditions in new york like um i mean obviously we we watched the statue of liberty race and it looked um it looked like a little choppy right there's some boat chop out there and so on and so forth but i mean it looked like you paddled a really great race there was uh, a little bit of different kind of courses and lines that people were taking based on a little bit of bumps here or there but it wasn't really it was it was kind of a flat water grind with a lot of boat chop is what it kind of looked like right yeah not a lot definitely. of drafting it was, a, it was a fun one though i mean at the end of the day i would take those conditions over a completely flat lake or a completely flat flat water because you would have seen a completely different race first to you know tenth or whatever it would have been would have been in a draft train and it would have been okay save your energy save your energy okay all out sprint right ahead and uh, with the boat wake, and there's definitely a lot of current, a lot of water moving, and um, there's plenty of swells. You know, the guys that really knew bumps and knew how to, like, utilize the bumps pulled away within the first five to ten minutes. And then um, after that, it was kind of, you know, race your own race, which is personally my favorite, to be, to be able to kind of get in your own rhythm and get into your own zone, what you're comfortable with, and and be able to, you know, push when you want to push and, and relax on the bumps when you have an opportunity just allows you to get in such a better flow state out in the water. Whereas, 
you know, if you're behind someone, you're kind of at their mercy, right. you know, if they're going to start sprinting or they're going to stop or if they're going to go left or right, you know, you're just staring at a tail in front of you and, uh, and then going from there and then it goes both ways too. You know, you never really know if the guy up front is pushing super hard. So then when it's your turn to go up front and lead the train, it's like, okay, do I push hard as I can or do I save energy? Do I go? And it's just, you know, you got a lot more mental and thoughts running through your head. Whereas if, you know, that race, for instance, we were all kind of in our own little zones, catching our own little bumps. There's moments when we rounded the island, it flattened out. We kind of pulled into some trains and things like that. But for the most part, there's enough bump to spread out the field and allow you to kind of get in your own rhythm. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the draft rule, honestly, of drafting. I know it's a big part of the sport and so on. But, I mean, from a spectator standpoint, it is – I mean, it's, it's a little bit boring. It becomes kind of a start and a finish. For sure. Yeah. Hundred percent. Right. And I, then I agree. With them. And 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 also just, I mean, in terms of, um, yeah, people putting in a hundred percent or really digging, you, you really don't know. I mean, obviously, everyone who's getting pulled is going at something less than a hundred percent. And like you said, you can't, it's, you can't run your own race. You're just kind of, your job is to basically not fall off the tail of the person in front of you. Yeah. So you just got to go yeah, wherever they go. The, changes the whole aspect of racing you know it's it's um it's not it's racing it's following the fastest guy right yeah I, I said it's not really racing it's kind of following yeah that's what i was just gonna say kind of you know it's not the fastest guy will normally still come out on top but it really is yeah you're following you're you're utilizing and taking advantage of someone else's gains and their their um power and to the stroke and all that kind of stuff where in the ocean that's why i mean of course coming from hawaii it's of course my favorite but downwinding you know no matter what drafting there's no opportunity there's no chance you're not going to even be able to do that and it's so cool to see it because everyone will pick their own line and you really don't know i mean that sometimes you can see there's a clear guy in front or a clear guy in in the back but I've been in full situations where I'm leading way out in front and, you know, someone chooses a better line and flows into the mouth of Malika or flows into the, you know, around Port Lock for Molokai in the first right there at the end. And it's, you know, that's exciting. That's, that's what people want to see. It's not this draft train, for instance, 11 city tour where you got, you know, five days of choo-choo trains going along <laughs> these flat lakes and flat rivers and canals and stuff. And, that's that's been always my personal favorite just to kind of get in your own flow state your own rhythm and kind of race your own race and especially in a race like Molokai you're in your own head and your own thoughts you're not even looking left or right really and you know that you just have to focus on your own own game right and I and I think the other thing about the draft trains is the last thing I'll say is like there's no equity in it so or fairness right so it's kind of each paddler kind of has to be responsible for calling people off or calling people in to take their turn and so on. So you can have races where one guy, you know, pulls everybody yeah. around for most of the course. And then, and then it turns into yep. a sprint and the, at the end, and then somebody, you know, the guy who pulled everybody the whole race doesn't necessarily win the yeah. race. And, and he's gassed, exactly. you know, they're gassed. That person's kind of gassed and everybody else is fresh. And it just doesn't, at the end of the day, as a, from a, as a spectator, you look at it going, I don't think the fastest guy won in, in this race. I think it was no, I mean, a lot of strategy. No. I mean, certainly strategy, and people are trying to figure out the best way to win. 
and you got to give him credit for that. But anyway, that's why I'm not such a big fan of it. So no, I totally agree. And, and to add just on that too, it's, I mean, from an athlete position, whether you're winning from it or losing from it, it's, it's a pretty bitter taste. You know, I've won races where, you know, I've played the game and played smart and, and stuck behind people for most of the race and pulled when I had to pull, but, you know, really raced the smart game and, and won because of it. And it's, it's, you know, it's still win, but then at the end of the day, you're like, did I win that? Or was it because of, you know, who was in front of me pulling me the whole time? And, uh, you know, and, and then to lose, it's even a more bitter taste, you know, and I remember the first years of stand up where drafting was still such a blurred line and such a blurred gray area that I was totally against it. I would never, I would stop paddling and let people pass me and then pull on their side and, and not pull behind them and then pass them again and have them pull against my tail. And it was a few years of that. And then it was like, okay, I got to get smart. No one, no one, there's no rules. There's no, you know, nothing against it. So. And there's uh, no referee. Yeah. There's, there's no, no referee. There's no, right. There's no one saying like, Hey, yeah. buddy, it's, it's your turn. But that was one of the nice things about the course. I think it, at the Statue of Liberty was um, it, it did the, the, the rougher water broke everybody up every, every as you watch that race you really saw everybody kind of picking their own lines racing their own race and you know i think for a guy like you who really prefers downwinding and bumps relative to just you know real glassy flat water grinds um it's yeah. going to be a little bit more enjoyable to see those conditions right because it even in boat chop conditions there's still bumps running in all different directions and so what are you guys doing at that point? Are you just trying to find bumps that are running in the direction you need to go or how does that work? Definitely going with the flow, you know, I mean, if it's going in the complete opposite way, you're not going to choose that bump, but if there's an opportunity and it's not, you know, like especially downwind or these kind of races, I'd like to think it's, you know, it's not necessarily about the journey or the, in the moment where you're going, as long as you know the destination and that point. And if it's going to get you there, whether it's you're paddling a little extra, a little bit farther, if you're getting on a bump, you're going to be able to pull a little bit away and pull a little bit away. And whether it's mentally or physically, you're going to break your ass, your, you know, your competitors around you. And that was definitely what was happening. There's a lot of current, a lot of water moving. And I know on the way back, once after we rounded the island, um, there's a bunch of strategy because if you pointed straight at the buoy that you wanted to go, the current was ripping you up. And um, then you actually had to fight against it once you got to the other side. Whereas I kind of pointed to the left and above the buoy and it kind of banked me in and brought me straight into the buoy. So there's a lot of strategy and a lot of bump riding. And in those moments, yeah, you got boat wake from the left, boat wake from the front and the right and behind. And you're kind of just trying to get in a nice flow state and rhythm and uh, just kind of following the bump. Whatever opportunities come your way, if it's not going to impact you in a negative way or put you in the backwards situation where you're not going in the right direction, um, you know, you're, you're going to chase that bump no matter what and try to stay on it for as long as you can just to, you know, make sure and make it an easier time at the finish of the race so you're not in a sprint battle across the line. Right. And you're making it, obviously you guys are, making these decisions and reading the bumps in real time, right? So, I mean, you didn't, it's not like you went out and paddled this course a lot before the race and really kind of got an understanding of the currents, or maybe you did, right? You guys knew which way the no. currents were going to be going at that time of the day. But 
a lot of it is particularly with a site like this that you don't spend a lot of time paddling. It's a lot of real time instincts. It's in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that. That's uh, something I've been focusing on in in the trainings and, and in the events lately, just because everyone's training hard, everyone's putting the time in. Now it's what's the next thing? What's that next step? And being in the moment, being present really, really draws you into, you know, what's going around you. And then you're way more aware and way more prepared for, you know, a bump that hits you to the left instead of hitting you on the left and you almost falling in, it hits you on the left and then, okay, tap, tap. And now I'm in that bump. Right. Right. Now I know you do, I know you do a lot of planning in terms of like, when you plan out your year, which races you're going to do and you're famous for really figuring out which races you really want to focus on. Was this, was this one of the events that, cause you obviously for people who don't know you, you won the overall, which is fantastic. But was this one of the races that you concentrated on, would you say? Um, yes and no. Um, you know, I kind of break my events in the ABC. And yeah. this would have been definitely been like a, a B race. You know, it's definitely wanting to do well. There's, you know, good good media, good uh, prize money and stuff like that. And, of course, the tour and the overall at the end of the year is, uh, of course, a big goal. Getting another world title would mean a lot. Right. So there's definitely a lot of focus and a lot of time in, to that event. But for instance, like the Molokai, unfortunately, just coming a little short this year, and the Maui to Molokai and TPG are some of those big A races for myself. But um, everything else, you know, it's it's hard when you're in the moment and you're in the race. It's kind of everything shuts out. You don't remember if it was the A race, B race, or C race. You're like, okay, I'm winning this. <laughs> you know, and if <laughs> right. you have the opportunity and have the chance. And you're in a good spot, you know, everything else fades away, the pain, the, you know, the tire, the fatigueness, all that fades away. And then you have one thing on your mind and that's to win. And would you, would you say you went into this event feeling confident that you were going to do well? I would actually say no. I mean, it was definitely been a whirlwind of a year and this year has been crazy, but I think this event was more just to get back up on my feet and I wanted it to be a comeback race. I wasn't expecting it to be a winning race for myself. And I was just hoping for a top three finish and overall. So it was definitely a different game where I previous years going to every event, everything chasing that gold. And I think that's just worn me down to the ground and I've had to hit reset and kind of take a step back now that everyone has a chance. We have top 20 guys at any given get given day whoever's on their step form top form is going to take that race you know so i took a step back and was focusing more on being present being in the moment of the day and uh, really taking it in especially with those surroundings and that opportunity for me that was the first time paddling on that on those waters around statue of liberty and being out there so that was kind of the focus and that was the fourth place result over there and then the surf race that's a whole nother game that was same thing. I was like, okay, top three would be amazing. I'd be super stoked. I know in these kind of races, it's anyone's game. You know, we could get taken out in the semifinals or the, you know, the first round. And uh, with the waves, it really puts that factor in of not knowing. You know, you can put as much time and focus, but if you miss one stroke, and that means, okay, now I'm going over whitewash instead of a clean face, 
and that puts you back one or two positions and then you miss the wave on the way in and you know it's such a short little course it's not this you know five mile six mile it's a you know 400 500 meter sprint out in out in done and uh there's no mistakes to be had you know one little mistake you go from first to last yeah and that and what's fun about that one is it's not a single elimination race right so you got to it's a ladder format up to the finals. So I think everyone was confident you were going to make it to the finals. And then what's amazing is the stability, obviously, that all of you guys have. I mean, you're professionals, but the stability that you guys have in, in the surf, in whitewater, and all kinds of stuff, it, particularly, you know, heelside turns around a buoy on a wave, you know, with whitewater behind you. And then that, yeah. that amazing buoy turn with you. And I think it was Mo, right? I think it was Mo Fridas who yep. put his board like right between your legs. I mean, walk us, walk me through what was happening at that moment because you just look rock solid. And like, I mean, yeah. Mo, unfortunately Mo went down, but I mean, that buoy turn was the, was the breaking moment I thought for that race where Connor didn't even flinch, you know, when that board came across his bow and, he looks so solid on his board right now. I, I can't imagine him not winning this race. Definitely. No, that was definitely a breaking moment for myself, too. I knew um, the pack of, like, four or five guys. It was super short interval swells. So Mo and I jumped on a wave before everybody. Right. And then, you know, we kind of took a break, took a breath, and I was like, hey, this is it. It's going to be first and second, Mo and I. And then I look back and the wave is like almost devouring our waves and doubling up. So I'm like, okay, this is actually not going to, you know, be just Mo and I. And you saw it right away. We kicked out of our wave. And when we were turning around, the group of four or five guys came hot in onto us and were right on our tail. But um, I actually had the inside line and the, the wave kind of drug me in a little bit past the buoy which allowed me to kind of go a little bit wider and Mo saw that opportunity and tried to get it on my inside. And it's something with these sprint races you've got to be prepared for and got to get used to. And whether it's a nose of a board going in between your legs or onto your tail or in front of you, it's something we've had to deal with quite a bit. And it's uh, in that moment, it's something you kind of have to just brush off. You can't let it affect you. As soon as it affects you. That's when you fall in and that's when, you know, the race kind of comes to an end for yourself. So when I saw his board coming in on top of me, I was like, okay, I'm just going to cleanly finish my turn, even though it's going to help him get his board facing out. I'm just going to focus on my turn and making my turn and then getting out through the surf. And, uh, you know, he came on glued and then it allowed me to kind of get a little breakaway from the group because he was in the water and kind of creating a little blockage for everyone having to go around him or on his inside. And uh, that was the opportunity. I was like, okay, head down. This is it. Let's go. Yeah, that was the, yeah, it was the perfect moment. They kind of decided the rest of that race. For and, sure, yeah. But it, it, as when, when they're planning a race course like that and they're mapping out the buoys, obviously, I mean, when I'm thinking about these turns in my head, I'm thinking about heel side turns versus toe side turns. And like for you guys, does it even matter whether you're, whether you have a heel side turn versus a toe side turn? Like the yep. toe side turns can be a little bit harder for most people, right? And the fact That's that you were kind of coming in with a heel side turn. So I think a right, you know, right foot forward stance, I think is going to be in a little stronger, more balanced position, would you say, than, than a regular? Yeah, point? definitely. 
I uh, personally, I mean, I uh, I like both turns, and I wouldn't say it affects you. And I guess I'd say quite a bit. I know Zane, Michael, a lot of the guys out there were actually switching so that <laughs> every turn was heel side for them. Wow. And that's a big difference, you know. Even though switch stance, you might not be completely stable, but just being able to have your paddle on the outside and having that big arcing turn will allow your board to come around quicker. Personally, though, I love going toe side, that cross bow turn and being able to, you know, cross over, rip your nose around and then continue on, I think has a big um, advantage, a lot to do with, especially in these sprint races, because you'll come into a turn and you have a guy on your tail, you have a guy right on your rail, you have another guy on your other rail. So you go to paddle and do you want to get that nice arcing turn and you put your blade in the water and you're on someone's board and then you put your blade behind you and you're on another board. So being able to cross over and get your paddle on the inside in between buoy paddle and then yourself gives you a nice clean entrance and allows you to really kind of drag yourself around the buoy without getting, you know, in the way or having your paddle hit someone's board. And um, that's my personal favorite. I would have rather the other way far as gone out right hand turn on the outside and then left turn on the inside, just because I don't know if you've seen it at PPG or any of those races, but we've been able to, if it's not a full whitewash wave and it's a swell, which Mo and I were on, you can almost put your blade in the water on that cross bow side and come out of the turn plane and make a big bottom turn. But instead of putting the brakes on, you kind of cross over and use it as a rudder. And that will just swing you around. And I've come out of turns planing. Whereas on my heel side, you're stepping back to the tail, kind of putting the brakes on and then putting your paddle in the water. And it definitely slows you down a bit. Huh. Okay. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But yeah, I could see where that'd be a little bit of an advantage for sure. If you can pull that off. But that's pretty nice. If you can pull it off. You know, it's not the cross bow. And that balance factor is, is definitely something you want to play with in practice. It doesn't just come instantly. And then, of course, crossing over, you know, you're putting your weight on one side where you want to be leading on the other. So it's definitely a tricky turn. But like I said, for those two kind of cases coming in, I like being on my toe side rather than heel side just because I can do a nice bottom turn. And whether I am crossing over or if I even if I do a normal surf, you know, kind of put that paddle on the inside and lean on it like a bottom turn, I feel like you can have way more flow and speed out of the buoy turn compared to stomping on the tail and turning around like that. Are, are you spending, are you surfing a lot on your race board and training and at home and things like that? For sure. You know, on, on season, um, you know, it's mostly just race paddling for me. I tend to, you know, go a little bit of windsurfing, a little bit of shortboarding and stuff like that. But definitely as much as I can when there's an opportunity to catch some waves. Uh, my local training spot, Kahului Harbor, has pretty much every condition in one lap, which is pretty incredible. If we have a little north swell pushing, you got a side wind, you got an upwind, you got the other opposite side wind, you got a downwind. And then if there's a little north swell pushing, you can catch a wave and then actually pound through the waves back out. So you have pretty much every condition that you would imagine. And then, of course, you can kind of hide in and hug the wall and get a little flat water as well. And that's in one lap, which is about, takes you about 20 minutes. So it's a uh, pretty good. 
Yeah, and that's like the only place you can hide from the wind on Maui, pretty much, right? And that's the other thing. It's like Maui is uh, the wind wind island for sure, and it's been crazy. I know before I left for this trip, it was like wind up at 7, 6.37 in the morning, already cranking. You could go for a full Maliko and have some fun, but that's not always the best training, unfortunately. It's a lot of fun, <laughs> the, most, the most fun training. But, you know, coming into this season – um, you know, from Hood River, it was definitely good to get some downwind in. But then after that, you know, it's a bunch of flat water kind of surf race stuff. So, hey. and now that we're on the 14 as well, it's, it's definitely handy. And Red Bull is going to be on 14. I know previous years, PPG has always been on 14s, but all of Tristan's and we were on 14s out there in the Long Island and the Statue of Liberty race. So just to get used to the 14 on waves and going out through the waves is pretty key just because the 12 six in previous years was so much easier so much more turning ability on the wave around the buoys instead of one big step back you know on a 12 six on the 14 you kind of got to take a little hop back and then a big step back to get your foot all the way on the kicker and uh so you know just practicing those kind of things and, and being comfortable with your board comfortable in all conditions has definitely been part of my training for since i can remember <laughs> yeah well let's talk about the 12 6 thing because i didn't actually realize that but are there there races that you guys had been doing prior to this year where 12 6 was the max length or was was it a preference call you could race whatever you wanted so with tristan's tour now it's preference it's 14 and under so if you want to go 12 6 for instance, for Red Bull or even down there in Long Beach and uh, those kind of races, it's 14 and under. But okay. so far this year, it's, I haven't seen a single race on 12.6. It's been 14 or unlimited for myself. I know ISA will be the only one on 12.6, I'm pretty sure, this year. Yeah, and why is that? I think it's the mass population of the sports the amateurs the everybody that wants to do the sport for some reason they find and it is true you know you get that little glide and maybe it's not at the top speed if you're doing a 200 meter sprint there's not going to be a huge difference 14 of course is a little bit faster but most people are doing these longer races the carolinas the chatterjacks all these crazy long distances from you know 30 miles to 10 miles and uh I think 14s are just way more comfortable and way more glide to them. Oh, yeah. And uh, the sport and everyone just kind of got together and just said, hey, let's clean this up. We don't want to be traveling with a 12-6 and a 14. And I know that was last year, for instance, in Europe. We had the whole Euro Tour on 14-footers. And then Tristan had his one event at the end of the Euro Tour that was 12-6. So we had oh, to – travel around Europe for a month and a half with 14 footers racing every weekend. But on top of that, have a 12, six just sitting around and paying for extra baggage and just to have for that one event at the end of the Euro tour. Yeah. That's crazy. Kinda, yeah. So everyone's kind of cleaning it up and making it make more sense. I think 14 footers on the side of, you know, starboard fanatic and all the companies goes, they're selling more 14 footers than 12 sixes. The biggest market for 12.6 is Japan, just because of the people are a little smaller, the cars are smaller, and uh, you know space is limited out there. So I know 
that was actually, I'm, so I now that I'm thinking about it, the only race I've done on 12-6, that was that um, tsunami race in the, in the Okinawa Islands. Yeah, I mean, we see, I mean, I predominantly see 14-footers, and now that the women are going to 14, I think it's going to be, it's going to be helpful, because, I mean, even from the perspective of a retailer, you know, you got to, you got to carry, it's, it's just hard to figure out what your inventory is going to look a like. 12, 6, and 14. Yeah. yeah. No, 100%. Yeah. It's and so then, much... you know, as the sport evolves, and especially as this tour evolves, um, and making it more elite and making that kind of that statement, if you look at any other elite or world tour event, for instance, the closest one we can compare it to is WSL. I mean, a lot of those riders, John, John, Kelly, they have their pro model, Almiric, or their pro model, Tyzel. Right, right. That's the average Joe can buy. But at the end of the day, they're getting 15 to 20 short boards per event. Per event, they're getting 15 to 20 boards specifically designed for that wave in that location. Really? And, uh, yeah, like, it's, it's insane. I've been hanging out with Sonny Garcia lately. And he was telling me all the stories back in the day traveling, and it's still the same. They travel with probably, you know, 15 to 20 boards. No I way. mean, luckily, their boards are small, and they can fit like five or six in one board bag. So they're able to, you know, travel with only a couple board bags, and they're short. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah, no, each event, they're getting new boards specifically designed for that wave. And it makes sense. They're going from Tahiti to, you know, wave pool to, you know, over to the, you know, Gold Coast and Australia. And, you know, so they have to have a board that works for that wave. And, you know, surfing is way more uh, fine-tuned in that sense. So it's, you can't compare it completely. But at the end of the day, we can't ride their board. Whether we got their board or not, we're not going to make those boards perform as well as them either, you know. So as this sport evolves, I don't know. I could see it going back down to 12.6 for the elite paddlers just because it would be that much more exciting. And with Tristan's for, format, the APP, the distance is only 6 to 14 miles, right. anywhere in that range, depending on the day and the course and all the weather issues and all that. And then the sprint is anywhere from 90 seconds to, for instance, in the surf race, took us a little bit longer, a few minutes. But we're not racing these crazy distances where Molokai, yeah, you want and need an unlimited board. You know, 11 City Tour, you want a pretty fast 14-footer. You want every little inch, you know, to make that glide that much better. But um, who knows who we'll see. You know, Tristan is previous years talking about going even smaller down to 10-6. And just to make it that much easier for traveling, and that much easier for, you know, and that much more exciting, I guess you could say. And that is a big problem because this year I haven't traveled with a single board. I have to order boards to location. For instance, I order two boards to Europe, pick those up, and then have to sell them at the end of it, and huh. then pick up two boards in California and on the West Coast, and, you know, had a board for Carolina, but then had to sell it because you can't travel with it. You can't get them on the planes. If you're lucky in certain airlines, you know, depending who you get at the front desk, you can get it on the plane. But 12 sixes, I've personally have never had any problems with. I've always gotten a 12 six on the plane. I've always been able to travel with it. And I think that was kind of the Tristan and the APP's theory with the 10 six. 
uh, between traveling and the excitement. You know, you can whip a buoy turn four times as fast <laughs> on right. a 12.6 compared to a 14. Right. But nobody, I mean, right now, nobody makes a 10.6. So that'd be interesting. But no, that, that's all of that is, is, is wild to think about because you're obviously one of multiple racers who are showing up at all these events. And so everyone's kind of in the same boat. Nobody really feels confident they're going to be able to get to the airport and put a 14 foot board on the plane both ways. And then you compound that over all the events that you're doing. It's, it's a major (laughs) challenge to try to get. So in your case, you know, you've got to find a board basically at every race. And so logistically, it's just one more thing you guys have to tackle with every event site. Yeah. Well, thanks to Wind and Waves for sticking me out and getting the board out to, on the East Coast, you know, stops and stores like that that make it, you know, really easy for traveling. Just because that factor, we don't get, you know, 20 to 15 boards per event. We get one board per event and that's I mean, if that, you know, it's, um, you know, you have to kind of delegate it, you know, at the end of the year, I think it's like five or six boards are contracted and then you have to pay for anything over that. And already, you know, surfing, you know, the boards are 500 to to $1,000 where race boards are 2000 to $4,000. So it's a big price gap and it's a lot more material and things like that. But it's, um, it's getting there, you know, with Tristan's tour, he's trying to get logistics involved and his goal at the end of the year and for next year is to, you know, have a container where it's dedicated to, you get two race boards in a container, each athlete, you leave that board in there and you can you ah. know, switch them out along the way. But um, it just shows up. You that's show cool. up with your paddles and your clothes and your board is going to be that waiting there for you. Yeah. See, that's how he should do it. That's a great call. He'll deal with those logistics. You guys just get your plane ticket and get going. Yeah. Hey, exactly. I, I, I want to, I want to, yeah, exactly. No, that, that's, that's a great point. And, and it just shows that there's some room in terms of the evolution of, of worldwide racing with the added challenge of these, yep. this equipment that's just so big and cumbersome and hard to fly with. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I want to talk to you a little bit about the Hawaii races. Um, I want to talk about M2M and M2O and you've had that, this amazing undefeated record with M2M which is absolutely outstanding. And and then M2O has always been this amazing coveted race that um, everybody, every every paddle racer, I think, who competes in that thing is would love to be able to win that race at least once in their lifetime, and you've won it multiple times. What, what's the biggest difference in your mind between those two races? Why? How is it that you're undefeated at M2M? And and M2O is 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 that much more elusive or that much more challenging? What is it that makes it so much more challenging on the M2O race? The biggest difference would definitely have to be conditions. <clears throat> Maui to Molokai is, you know, one of the best downwinders in the world, for instance. I mean, you're starting with the wind. You have it a little bit side, but you're still catching bumps. And then the last... 12, 13 miles is the most famous and world-renowned run. It's six-foot high swells, perfectly groomed, rolling through the channel. You know, the widest point between Molokai and um, and Maui is about eight to ten miles. So it's just all this energy and force of swells is getting crammed into this little narrow channel and just piping down and allowing you to get a pretty stellar run you know you're you're gliding and you're catching bumps 
the whole entire time. And then if you think about it, just look at times. The fastest time on Maui to Molokai for a 27-mile race um, is 2.58. And then the fastest time from Molokai to Oahu, which is only five extra miles, so you wouldn't think it would be that much of a difference, but the fastest time is almost an hour, 3.58. Yeah. So right there alone, as conditions make a huge factor. Of course, Molokai to Oahu is just that channel of bones. You know, you're not getting these perfectly groomed swells from point A to point B. You have way more currents involved. You have way more kind of tactical lines you have to choose from, whereas Maui and Molokai have pretty much taken the same line every year. You know, it varies a little bit, maybe go a little more south or a little bit more north. But at the end of the day, it's pretty similar every year, even if the conditions change. Whereas Molokai, you can have, you know, five or six different options as far as lines to take, depending on the currents, the wind, and all that. And then um, another factor is mental. You know, you're, you're out there for an extra hour, so you're way more fatigued. You're having way more thoughts of giving up. I don't want to do this. I can't do this. Whereas Maui to Molokai, I've only had that a handful of times, and most of the time I'm like, this is awesome. This is, you know, this is incredible. I'm surfing the whole time. Let's do this again. Right. You hit the beach tired and sore, but wanting to go again. Molokai, right. you hit the beach tired and sore and say, I'm never doing this race again. And somehow I always do it. <laughs> oh, but you love it. I mean, yeah, I that would be the biggest. <clears throat> when do you think you're so? One of my questions is, when do you think, um, I mean, obviously they have this whole foil class now and you're an outstanding foiler. And so I'm kind of watching the future of M2O on paddleboards and wondering, you know, the moment for a lot of these guys to be the best of the best is kind of come and gone in a way, right? Because a lot of the best, a lot of the best competitors are now moving on to this foil class. And so what's kind of the, the problem with that is that anybody who wins now on an unlimited paddleboard is not going to have had the opportunity to race and potentially beat everyone, the best in the field because some of those guys yeah. are going to be on foils. And so you, you're one of the people in my mind that I don't know. I, I'm, I could imagine either of two scenarios. I, I could imagine a Connor Baxter is going to be on a paddleboard on M2O from here on out. Um, he's just that traditional guy who loves this race. This race is, he kind of personifies this race in a lot of ways. Um, but at the same time, I know you're an outstanding downwind foiler and I know how much you love downwind foiling and, and obviously you get an opportunity oh, yeah. to do it a lot back at home. Oh yeah. So at some point, like, so when, when's that transition going to happen, Connor? When do you think, have you thought about that? When do you think you're going to start for, sure. for the foil class? Um, you know, it's, it, it's definitely, it's a hard one to swallow. Like you said, you know, there's, there's days where, you know, you're like, Hey, should I go this or this or, and you know, it, the field is getting split up. Uh, personally, I would like to see it almost another category. and. When I say that is that, you know, maybe APP can have a spinoff and, you know, during the summer times, you know, they throw a Maui to Molokai or a Molokai to a Wahoo event. 
And um, that would be the coolest thing, just so then we can get the best of the best in both classes. Until then, yeah, it's going to be kind of pick or choose, and it would pretty much always fall down, especially with Maui and Molokai and Molokai. I'll always choose the paddleboard, just because, of, like you said, it's the traditional. It's what I fell in love with originally with these races, even though you can probably cut your time by an hour and be laughing and having fun and joking around compared to putting your head down and grinding the whole time. Um, it's just, you know, one of those kind of challenges you want to kind of overcome and accomplish each year with the paddleboard, whereas the foiling at the moment for myself personally has been more this side hobby, this kind of fun thing, like, okay, let's go foil. Let's, like, let's not think about paddling. Let's just go foil and have a blast and have some fun with some friends crisscrossing, laughing, and having a good time. And I definitely see a potential in a future for the sport. At the, mo- at the moment, though, it's pretty elite. Like, you look at the guys that are doing it, and I think this year Hood River had a pretty big turnout, but I think the Maui Poi Bowl um, had one of the biggest. I think it was like 25 foilers on the water at once. and. Wow you know, every single one of those guys have transitioned from paddling originally and have put a lot of time on the water foiling. So it's not going to be anything that's going to take over stand-up just because it's such a mass participation sport. And why that is, is because anybody can do it anywhere, anytime. All you need is water. Whereas, you know, this sport for me personally at Playable, I had both boards on the car. I'm like, hey, if it sucks, I'm definitely not taking the foil. I'm going to go paddle. And, you know, if it's good, I'm going to go foiling. Because with foiling, it can be either the best run of your life and you'll never be able to top that feeling. Or it can be one of the worst paddles of your life and you end up paddling a six-foot board down the coast and not able to get the foil up and going. And it is miserable. Uh, so, yeah, I know that feeling. Still, they, yeah, I think all of us have been there, done that. And until they kind of separate it, I think that's where we're going to see the biggest growth in the foiling aspect. And just because, you know, I mean, like a lot of sports we have, stand-up is we're very fortunate in the sense we can race any day, any time, whether it's windy, rainy, stormy, upwind, sidewind, you know, they'll send us out there, we'll go. Whereas foiling it would kind of transfer more into windsurfing and surfing where, you know, we've already been talking about it for next year. It's like, hey, let's have a week-long holding period and pick the best day and you know, the guys that are doing the foiling are not, you know, working a nine to 10 job, most of them, and they're serious about it and can come here to Maui and be here for a week and be on call. And I think that would really, as far as, you know, have perfect conditions and then, you know, have that holding period of, for the event, you're splitting it up, you're getting the elite, the best of the best, all in one division, instead of having to pick and choose the day of. Yeah, that's a really good point. You're right. It's like a windsurfing event. You need to have wind or a surfing event. You need to have surf. You can't. Yeah, you have to have a minute. Yeah. No, that's a great point. And you're and it's not a um. You're right. The it's it's not a sport for the for the masses, so to speak. Right. It's yeah. It's not no, it's everyone's going to do. But but I worry about you know yeah. the, the elite stand up paddle racers right now are all great athletes who are all foiling um you know in their free time or extra time or fun time or whatever so th- that was the only threat that I could see is if if all the elite guys just decide hey I've done this M two O paddle a number of times now now yeah 
I am I I'm ready to shave an hour and a half off of my personal <laughs> record and just do this on a foil and have fun and not just grind it out the whole way. And is on and I don't know no, that, there's sponsor obligations and all that as well, but um I could see I could see sort of the top elite guys in the sport in the in stand up paddle being the guys who sort of make that transition. And then everyone uh everyone else below them in the sport is going to be there'll be no one at the top to look at anymore. There'll be there'll be just absentees in the elite field because everyone will switch to foiling. That's what I would. Yeah, no, that's that's the biggest thing, and I would definitely kind of say the same thing. You've already seen a few athletes um, really transfer over and almost commit to just foiling this year. Like for instance, Ryan Funk, who's been a training partner. Yeah buddy of mine you know training every single day at 720 at the harbor meeting me there has transferred over to pretty much now like oh, okay i'm gonna sleep in i'm gonna go <laughs> foil down there have some fun and and not have to worry about you know training as much and keep it fun you know and james casey has been doing yeah. both and really taking advantage of you know the conditions when it's good and ty lenny pretty much will not really see him at any other races but the app Right. And he's going to be foiling. So it's definitely taken a few of the top guys out of the picture as far as going for that title race or going for that, you know, big one day event for Molokai or Maui and Molokai. And, and your buddy, um, and your buddy Zane. Yeah. Yeah. And that's it. But that situation is really cool to see. You know, you look at Dave's yeah. situation. No, no, Zane. I said Zane. Like, Sorry, Zane Schweitzer. Oh, Zane. Zane, yeah. And and Dave, and Dave, you're right. And Dave. Yeah, both of them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Zane's killing it. You know, it's the same thing. You know, Zane's really taking advantage of, you know, this opportunity, touring around. He has his beginner foils and all these different foils to teach people and, you know, making a really good opportunity and a career out of that. And then, yeah, like I was saying with Dave, too, that was a really cool situation to see just because he's been this champion waterman and, yeah. you know, pretty big figure in my life and a lot of people's lives looking up to kind of coming to a stage in his life. He's like, Hey, I'm definitely done with racing. I don't want anything to do with that. And he's like, even in the surf, he's like, I I'm over it. You know, I've been here in Maui my whole life and I still get hassled when I go out to my local break on a stand up board. I'm born and raised Hawaiian made of blood. And I still get hassled. What, what, why? Like, you know what I mean? And now with the foiling, it shifted his eyes from, okay, I don't need to go to my perfect left or my perfect right. I can go chase these smaller, not so quality waves and have just as much fun. And then the downwind came into it. And now he's like, okay, this is, this is gold. <laughs> you know, he's like able to surf bump. And when I say surf, literally surf, you know, you're cutting in and out straight out to the ocean, straight back to the beach. And, um, you know, surfing 10 miles up on a foil for 45 minutes, 50 minutes, just gliding effortlessly, quietly, stealthily. And, um, you know, it's gotten him back in the water 24-7. Oh, God. I mean, foiling, foiling to me feels like finding gold in your backyard. Like, it was there. Yeah. These waves were there all the time. You you just pass them by for forever because it either – whatever. You, the conditions sucked or whatever. And now <clears throat> with this – with this amazing new piece of equipment, whatever toy, 
all, you see everything differently and everything's like this new opportunity and it's so much freaking fun. New opportunity. Yeah. 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 That's a good way to put it. But, but speaking of guys that you look up to who really love to foil, um, I got to ask you, what was it like growing up with Chuck Patterson in the house all the time? Oh gosh. Boo boo bear, Chuck Patterson. Um, <laughs> I can say a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. <laughs> nah, but most, mostly good. That guy has been a huge role model in my life. You know, my parents, um, sponsored him and have done a lot of things for him. So that involved him every winter from, you know, that November to April time of the year. And, yeah. um, at, at our house, staying at our house 24 seven and, um, you know, it's not only being able to see that level and then having him, you know, kind of take me under his wing and, you know, push me into some ways and throw me off the ski at Piahi and take some gnarly beatings. It's definitely pushed me and, and created me and shaped me into the person I am today for sure. Not only just in one sport, but this guy is crazy. He's doing everything. He's, you know, skiing down jaws and surfing big waves, windsurfing, kiting, snowboarding, skiing, A through Z, you know, it's really opened my eyes and seen like, okay, well, there's opportunity in the water and on land every single day. And I think that's changed um, a lot in my mind because, I mean, Maui, we've had all the different opportunities and, and different sports we dabbled in, but to actually take advantage and then see, okay, today is actually – looking perfect for this condition or this day is looking perfect for this sport. Um, Chuck has been a huge kind of factor in that and pushing me and telling me to be in the water 24 seven, sun up to sunrise. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, I've spent a lot of time with him and feel very fortunate that I've gotten a chance to spend, you know, as, as much time as I have in a number of different places. And we've done some fun trips together and we've been over on Hawaii together. We did M2O together and, We've done some other really fun things. He's come here and stayed with us. He comes down to Puerto Rico, obviously a lot with us. And I just love the guy. And he's just, he's such a, such a, he's a, he's a great role model. He's such an inspiration to everybody around him. He's always like, he's a game day player. I always say that he's a game because he's, you know, on the day of like, if he comes and helps us out with an event or he comes and helps us out with like a kid's camp or anything like that. He's, he's on, he's on 110% all day that day. And everybody that gets a chance to meet him or hang out with them during that time is an immediate huge Chuck Patterson fan. And he just has such For a sure. great, yeah, his positivity is just like that, outstanding. He has that energy that's really stoked up the crowd, stoke everybody up. And to see him, how he's, his career from, you know, going from this sport and being at the top of the level. Okay, now, you know, I've been there, done that. Let's try this sport. But not letting those other sports go and not forgetting how and forgetting to do them, he still goes and does them when he has the opportunity. But then, you know, he was winning first battle of the paddle, you know, won that race. You know, he's paddled in the stand-up boards on Piahi and done the sunset event. So to see him, like, transfer from – completely different sports from skiing all the way to, you know, stand up and windsurfing and kiting from wind sports to mountain sports to water sports, and then being at the top of the level. Right. It's pretty incredible. It's not a lot of athletes that are doing that and, and, you know, getting the results and getting the publicity and getting those, 
you know, recognition as Chuck, you know, he's done it forever and he's still doing it, which is so cool to see. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think, I think he deserves more recognition for that. And I think that I also joke with him. I'm like, I think Hollywood is missing a huge opportunity. I think that guy would be killer. And as yeah, a, incredible as, <laughs> he should be in movies. That guy should be in movies. He could be doing his own stunts. He could do everything, you know? Yeah. I agree. I agree, man. But I, you know, I, a lot of, um, there's a lot of fun, like old movies and images of you guys together. And you almost, you know, I know you guys spent a lot of time growing up and, and you were obviously a lot younger. And, you know, he was always like this big guy and, and, Connor Baxter back then, not anymore, but Connor Baxter back then was kind of like a, a tall, thin guy. And I said, listen, Connor, yeah. Connor had, didn't have a freaking chance because anybody who had to share a refrigerator with Chuck Patterson while they was growing <laughs> up was never going to get their share. <laughs> and I was like, you no. know, like, you know you why Connor, be the first yes. the table. you know why Connor was so skinny growing up is because Chuck Patterson was in his kitchen every, he beat, Connor to the kitchen every yeah, single day. He was living at our house. That was the problem. <laughs> I know. Well, how many, let me ask you this. How many times would you walk into the kitchen where Chuck was already in the kitchen before you? Uh, pretty much every morning and every night. You right. Know, you wake up, you come down, he's the first one up, already has this big bowl of oatmeal and bananas. And then same thing with dinner time. He's the first one in the kitchen, either instigating someone to cook or he's cooking or he's going to get some food. The guy is always eating. But he also does have really good snacks. Every Jaws and Boat Day, he brings this huge cooler up and he's filled to the brim. And, you know, I think his life evolves a lot around food, for sure. (laughs) Food and ice cream, because I think that's two different things for him. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we make sure he gets a lot of ice cream when he comes here, because we're kind of like the ice cream state. But Oh, yeah. 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 It's always fun to... See his like anxiety around food. We always got to make sure there's a lot of food around. That that boy needs he needs a lot of calories to keep the energy levels going. Yeah, you, let me tell you, you don't want to see Chuck angry. That, that's <laughs> not that's not fun. So definitely keep a lot of food around. Well, when we boated over but, with you and your and your parents to go over to Molokai for last summer's race, you know he and yeah, I room yeah. he and I roomed together, and so we did a little shopping spree on Maui at the um, Costco. And that was, that was one oh, of my favorite Chuck Patterson moments was pushing a shopping cart around <laughs> Costco, preparing for basically five days of whatever you bring is all you're going to have. So you got to be prepared, much. right? For as much food as you're going to consume for three meals a day, or probably more than three meals a day for, for five days. So yeah. I think we, I think we rolled out of there with like two shopping carts worth of stuff, and I was worried we weren't <laughs> gonna have enough. <laughs> I was like, I think we, yeah, I, I think we're light. Worried. I think we're gonna be light. I'm afraid we're gonna be a little light. <clears throat> but that was so much fun, especially spending time with you and your mom and your dad, and and getting to ride over there to Molokai with you guys before that race. I honestly, I gotta tell you, I felt like that was one of the greatest M2O moments that anybody could ever experience is seeing. Seeing the the is going over on the boat with the champ and his parents and you know days before the race and just watching you guys go through your preparations and seeing how loose and relaxed and you know the relationship you have with your mom and your dad is just really special and you know everything you've done and you're like this prodigy waterman that's um I know your parents are super proud and I feel like you know you are 
you're on this path, Connor, that you were kind of born to live and you're doing an amazing job fulfilling, you know, everybody's highest expectations of whatever they imagine for you. And I just want to say I'm a huge fan and thanks again for No, thank you, man. Thanks it, again. It takes that. a team. It takes a team for sure. I mean you 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 saw it firsthand with that event. That's one of the few events that I have, you know, in person right there at hand, that type of support and family around. Um, but it takes a team, you know, this has been, you know, put in my whole life and 24 years old now, but it's been, you know, 20 years of hard work. You know, his first photo shoot I was in was five years old with starboard on the front of Sam Rasmussen Ford, the owner of starboard. And ever since then, it's been nonstop traveling, fun adventures with meeting some crazy people and some amazing memories and, at the end of the day, it always comes back to it takes a team. You know, my, my mom and my dad have been there since day one. When I was a kid, you know, the dad was the caddy daddy and the mom was the momager. She was figuring it out, doing all the booking, doing all that stuff. And dad was fine tuning the gear and fine tuning the equipment. And, um, over the years, you know, it transferred and now so fortunate, you know, have my lovely wife, Ana, and now it's been that team and that's been super incredible traveling over for the past few years and being able to, you know, not only go and compete and do all these different things, but then to take a breath and in between events and in between crazy training sessions to be present, be in the moment, go and visit and look up, look where you are and see how the world is, you know, unfolding in front of you and see how, you know, how grateful and how blessed we all really are. Well, and, and you, and I know you and Sven have an awesome relationship and, um, you know, particularly, I mean, your parents being, you know, the first distributors for Starbird, right? For North America and Hawaii and, and your, your right. mom and dad's, your mom and dad's relationship with, with Sven and just the way that, you know, Sven saw you again. Yeah. Like you said, you know, as a four year old, you know, you and Zane. So, I mean, you guys have this really cool, um, you guys are like the, th you know, the three amigos in a way. I mean, you guys are this like this amazing triad of over the last 20 years of just an amazing lifestyle and a really, really fun experience. Having, yeah, 100%. Having built this brand and watched, watching this brand really become the number one brand in the world, you know, as a result of a lot of work, hard work, a lot of determination, a lot of perseverance and dedication to creating high performance equipment but for Sven it's got to be he's got to be just elated with the fact the retention and loyalty and the fact that he's watched you guys grow up and he's been able to watch you succeed as he succeeds and and yeah and the interesting story that a lot of people don't know right is just how 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 much how involved your parents were during that whole thing as well and Helping, yeah. helping Sven get started. And so it's, 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 you know, it's, sure. it's, it's a Cinderella story, man. It really is. And I, I gotta say, the more I've, <laughs> the more I've learned about it, it's just, it's one of the most impressive things about you, you know, in particular, you know, the way you've handled yourself around the whole thing. I think that you, you've demonstrated a lot of maturity in, in what you've done. You, you know, when you say you're 24, you almost sound like you're suggesting you're old, you know, but, and, and I think that's because, I think that's because you've been doing this a long time, but you're very, yeah, um, no, 10 years of, years of stand-up, but 
Yeah. It's been a lot of experience and a lot of wisdom. I've been taught by people like Chuck and Sen and all these guys. So it definitely feels like I've been around and have lived many lives already. Just so blessed to be able to see as many places and meet as many places and, and people and the cultures and all this different stuff. It's been, yeah, like you said, it's been the real story for sure, man. So what's, so what's your outlook on the Olympics and SUP? Speaking of, you know, 10 years and your future in the sport and, and this looming sort of opportunity of the Olympics that everyone's been talking about that, that looks and sounds yeah. like it's actually getting closer, right? Yeah, no, it's definitely been a subject that's been popping up more and more. And I mean, first of all, it's been a dream of mine since day one. I didn't know what it was going to be for or who or, you know, what it was. But now that stand-up has really had this opportunity and this growth and this opportunity, it's been a dream. It's been pretty incredible. And the closer we get, having 2019 next year, having the Pan Ams, which is the second biggest gathering sporting event, and stand-up is in there. And that's the one step closer, one step closer kind of thing towards that Olympic gold there, to that Olympic dream that everyone has. And for me, that's what I'm definitely going to be chasing. And whether it's training and preparing for it and helping to get the stand-up into it, you know, those are all different avenues I've been playing with and helping out with and, and figuring out. And it's an uh, incredible opportunity and it's to see stand up go into that and see what that would do for our sport would be pretty amazing. And to be able to be not only in the sport from the beginning and then grow it and be involved with it until this path of the Olympics and then hopefully have a year or two running in there and battling all these groms and kids because it'll be a little bit older by then. It's uh it's gonna be pretty incredible. Where where are the Pan Ams hosted? Where's that gonna be? So that's gonna be in Peru next year. And um they don't have teams and all that. It's only one male and one female for the technical race and then one male, one female for the circuit. Per country. Per country, correct. Yeah. yeah. So you so, so, have so only one one male and one female from Hawaii. Well, not from Hawaii. So it's it's uh, Hawaii will be completely out because we're part of U.S. and that's why this year's um, ISA Hawaii is no longer involved. Okay. And, uh, I mean, we carry USA passports, so it's only fair. Um, <laughs> but no, it's 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 not. They're not allowing all the countries. So we're all going to be, it's going to be the top 10. So there's different ways of qualifying, whether it's through the ISA event in China, or if it's through the ATP, or they'll actually be hosting a Pan American trials in Peru this year. So there'll be a few different options to get into it. There's two athletes, of course, because Peru is hosting it. They're already allotted and have their spots in the Pan Am. But then it's up to, you know, Brazil and all the, you know, South America, North America, Canada, all of us to kind of battle it out and see who the other nine athletes or nine countries will be representing in the Pan Am Strip stand-up. Well, see, because in a lot of, I mean, in some events, right, Hawaii is treated separately for the rest of the United States. And unfortunately, yeah. unfortunately for this, it's just there's so much competition coming out of North America that it's really not going to be they as... Right. It won't be as exciting because there'll be so much top talent that doesn't even show up because 
you can only get one representation from U.S. and Hawaii combined. U.S. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's going to make it interesting. It's definitely going to be the most stacked, you know, competitive trials or, you know, op- like ways to get into the, the Pan Ams. It's going to be pretty intense for the U.S. guys. Yeah. But at the same time, you know, that's what grows the sport. That's what makes it so much interesting. And, yeah, I mean, with these kind of events, it's been, you know, talked about in, for, for years for the Olympics. You know, the best guys are not always showing up to the Olympics. And that's just part of the game. You know, you're competing against, you know, a lot of different people just to go represent your country. And whether you are sick or hurt or don't have the opportunity or you're not in town or whatever it is and you don't have the chance to even try out, which has happened many, many times, you know, you don't always get the best of the best. And it's been something we've been dealing with um, as well with the ISA. You know, you don't always get the best guys there representing their country just because of financial problems or sponsorship or whatever it may be. But it's something, you know, we're all working on and it's something that I'm going to fight for no matter what to be able to be that one guy to represent the USA. Yeah. Yeah. Well, exactly. I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be competitive obviously as, as you know, and as we said, but yeah, I mean, and uh, you know, that whole, the idea of it's not necessarily always the best against the, the best because of circumstances beyond people's control. It's just kind of the nature of sports as well. You know, like some teams show up and they just don't have it that day or whatever or players show up. They don't have it that yeah. day. And I mean, that that's kind of the nature of a sports and what makes it exciting is you, you never know what the outcome is going to be. You know, there's always an underdog and sometimes the underdog wins, but where, where are the qualifying races going to happen for, to determine who, who goes from the United States? It's a secret, I'm not going to say. <laughs> nah, nah. Um, so, like I said, the top American from the ISA technical race in China. Uh, okay. So, they'll kind of go down the list. So, say if someone from Australia got first and Casper from Denmark got second and then third place was an American or from the Americas, whether it's South America, North America, that will be one spot. And then another opportunity will be from the APP at the end of the year, the first American, like I said, South America, North America, um, they'll kind of go down the list. So the first American they get, they'll take that guy out. And then also in, I believe it's in December, it'll be in Peru, the actual official trials. And that's another opportunity, but it's, it comes down to like, so say if there's an American that won each of those things, so it'll kind of go down the list to the next person that's not from, you know, the USA. They'll try to pick the next person from South America because they want to give those 10 spots to 10 different countries. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So a few different options, few different opportunities to kind of qualify yourself in there which is nice. It's not just one kind of big show and go for it. You win or lose, you're in or you're out. So there's two options, two opportunities. Okay. Okay. And and so in the meantime, Connor, are you, so you're in San Francisco now, are you going to be sitting tight, just waiting for the Red Bull event or? Pretty much. Yeah. We embarked on a pretty messed adventure. We left uh, Hawaii for Hood River 
August 9th, and we won't be home until December 12th, probably. So it's been a nuts one on the road. We went Hood River, hung out there for an extra week after the event, straight to New York. We're here for Battle of the Bay this weekend um, here in San Fran. Next weekend is PPG, so we'll drive down south, Got it. hit up that event, and then exactly, we'll drive back up here to San Francisco. We have a place to stay and a car to use, and we'll just kind of be posted up, training at Ocean Beach every day, kind of preparing for that event. And then what? And then when do you go back to Hawaii? So, yeah, so after that, it kind of depends when that happens. We don't have tickets and all that good stuff booked yet. But if it happens right away, we might head home and take a little bit to kind of reset and relax a little bit. But then after that, like if it doesn't happen towards the end of the holding period, China, the ISA is like first week of November. So it's going to happen like pretty close after and tickets are half the price leaving from San Francisco compared to Hawaii. So we might just post up here and then yeah, off the ISA that's if we're kind of having a little trauma with USA and the trials and who's on the team and who's not on the team. Well, so I we'll figure that out after PPG and kind of who's going to be the racers for USA and the ISA uh, trials or for the ISA in China this year. Yeah. It, and it's, and, uh, we make, what's that? Well, no, no, no. I was going to say, and all that stuff is, I mean, even you describing sort of who's going to the Pan Am games is way over my head anyway. So I'm not I'm sure I'm not going to follow that either, but obviously you got a good handle on it and it's, yeah, like it, I said, it's, it's complicated. It's a team effort. So it's a team effort. So finding out from different people and, and they've been researching and contacting different people to get some straight answers and, it's it's so funny. There's so much um, politics or politics, you could say, involved with all right. these federations and different things. There's a lot more than just show up, paddle, race your race. There's so many different variables, so many different things you have to deal with and hoops you have to jump through and get this and that and da 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 da, da and all these different fun projects. But you know, with a professional event like the ISA and that federation pushing towards that Olympic dream and pushing towards getting stand-up paddling, which they've already got surfing in there. Um, you know, it's, it's worth it. Yeah, it is. Well, you're doing a great job, pal. And thank you for taking some time out to talk to me tonight. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you for catching up. It was good to chat and, um, yeah, good times, good times ahead. Absolutely. So good luck, Connor. And, um, Hope to run into you again soon. Best to Anae. And, um, yeah, we'll be watching. So good luck to you, pal. Epic. All right. Yeah, epic. Cool. We'll talk soon. Take care. All right. Thanks, pal. Yeah.